Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored, one of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. You will discover there some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the Scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice. After all, that has all been a misunderstanding. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. Now, back to our current study. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 9. Officially, we should pick up at verse 9, but we need to back up a little bit. It's very important that we keep things in context. Otherwise, they won't make sense. The author is dealing with young Hebrew Christians who are beginning to lose their grip a bit in their faith. They're wanting to retreat, some of them, back into Judaism, with all of its ritualism and with all of its legalism, they're experiencing a certain sense of loss. They've become kind of dull of hearing. There are sin issues, and all of that tends to work against a growing faith. So he's writing to shore them up, and he's trying to show them that everything that we have in Christ is far, far superior to Judaism, that to go back would be the great retreat. It would be worse than that. It would be a great act of apostasy. But he wants them to see that in the person of Christ, we have one who is vastly superior to angels who were the mediators of the Old Covenant under Moses. We have one vastly superior to Moses himself. We have one who is vastly superior to Aaron, who was the high priest under the Old Covenant. We have one who is after the order of Melchizedek, a concept that's perhaps a little unfamiliar to them, and he has already explained that. The New Covenant is vastly superior to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is obsolete. It was revealed by God, but it was revealed for a time. 
when he said, verse 13 of chapter 8, a new covenant through the prophets, he made the first obsolete by implication. Now in chapter 9, he is continuing in that vein to show how everything that we have in the new covenant is vastly superior to what existed under the old. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. He reminds them that there was a tabernacle prepared under the system of worship under the Old Testament. That tabernacle had an outer division in which was the lampstand and the table and the showbread or the sacred bread, which was called the holy place. That was one division of the tabernacle and behind the second veil. There was a tabernacle which was called the Holy of Holies, and there was the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which had budded, and the tables of the covenant. All these things they were very familiar with. Above it was the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, emblematic representations of angelic figures. But he says of these things, verse 5, we cannot speak in detail. Now, when these things have been prepared, the priest under the Old Covenant are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But he tells them, again, what they know, but this is all in the spirit of reminding them for the purpose of instructing them of the superiority of the new. But under the conditions of the Old Covenant into the Second, that which represented symbolically the very presence of God among them, only the high priest was able to enter. That was only once a year. And he could not go in without taking blood, the blood of bulls and goats, which the priest would offer for himself and also for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now he says in verse 8, chapter 9 of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit was signifying something by all of that. By that whole arrangement, he was signifying that the way into the holy place, by that he means the holy of holies, into the presence of God, was not yet disclosed. God had not yet revealed it. While that outer tabernacle, belonging to the system of worship of the old covenant, was still standing, it was a symbol for the time then present, according to which both gifts and sacrifices were offered. But he notes that those which were offered under the Old Testament system of worship cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, there's no way they could clear the conscience of man. And the reason was, verse 10, they related only to food and drink and various washings, all ritual stuff, regulations that were for the body, that pertained just to the outer tabernacle of man. They were imposed until the time of Reformation, which has come. But when Christ appeared, this is where everything changed, and this is the superiority that we have under the New Covenant. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, unlike those high priests after the order of Aaron, he entered into the greater and more perfect tabernacle. This tabernacle that Christ entered into was not made with human hands. That is to say, it's not of this creation. It's not of this world. And he didn't go into that tabernacle in heaven through the blood of goats and calves and all that sort of thing, which were merely symbolic, merely shadows. They were not the substance, but he was. He, our great high priest, who is also our offering, he, through his own blood, 
entered into that holy place. He means that which is in heaven. He didn't do it once a year. He entered in once for all, and he obtained for us who have trusted in him eternal redemption. For explains in verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, all referring to ritual sacrificial ordinances of the old covenant, if the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing, he means the ritual cleansing of the flesh of the outer man, then how much more, he says to these Hebrew Christians, how much more will the blood of Christ, the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself, not the blood of a bull or goat, offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it cleanse your conscience from dead, unfruitful works to serve the living God? Think about that. I'd like here to share a passage from William Lane that illustrates the point well. The conception of sin, he says, as defilement, is a significant emphasis in the book of Hebrews. The contemporary church, that's us, has tended to forget this insight. A clever TV commercial depicts an attractive cruise director approaching a passenger. Why, Mr. Jones, loosen up your tie. You're on a cruise. As she adjusts his tie, she steps back and blurts out, Oh, no, Mr. Jones, you've got ring around the collar. Mrs. Jones groans, Oh, those filthy rings. Then the appeal of the cleaning product is made. Then Dr. Lane asks, Why does an advertisement like that attract our attention? What is there about dirt that finds a response in us? Why does a mother say to a small child going out to play, Now, honey, don't get dirty. Why, after a demanding day of hard physical labor and perspiration, do we say, I feel filthy. I've got to get a shower. Well, God has built into our consciousness a sensitivity to the fact of feeling filthy at the surface of our lives, and he's done that as a means of summoning us to recognize that sin makes us dirty within. Now, follow me. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ gets to the bottom of the human problem, this conscience problem. And that problem is sin, and our consciousness, though we try to mute it, blunt it, there is this consciousness that we are outlaws and estranged from God. But once we realize the all-sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Christ to purge us of all inner defilement in the sight of God forevermore, ah, then, then we can come boldly in Christ to the throne of God. Then we know that our defilement, our inward defilement, is cleansed once and for all. Then we know that we are eternally forgiven, and then we know that we are perfectly righteous, not because we literally are, but because the righteousness of God's Son is imputed to those who are in Him. You see, it is a morally accusing conscience that always drives human beings in fear from God. That's why Adam and Eve fled in the garden once they knew they were law-breaking sinners, once they disobeyed God's command. 
And it's that morally accusing conscience that distorts man's religion, causes us to want to reframe it in a way that it will not bother our conscience. And it's that fear of God, that dread of God, that prohibits as well as inhibits any drawing near to him. We want to run from God. More and more people want religion. That's nothing new. They always have. Man's always been religious. But they say they don't want organized religion because it's too dogmatic and it hems them in. What they really mean is that they want a religion of their own making. They want a cafeteria religion. They want to make it up in such a way that it does not get under their skin. It does not get after their conscience. They want to blind themselves. They want to go into denial. They do not want to come into a church where there may be a prospect that they will hear a word from the Lord and they'll find a sticker in their conscience. They'll find the mud in the bottom of their character bucket all stirred up. No, they'd rather go to the beach. They'd rather hug a tree and they'd rather make up their own, they call it being spiritual, notions about God and have their own kind of worship that absolutely does nothing for them. It is all in vain. It does not deal with the sin problem. The wages of sin is death. It does not deal with the death problem. It does not deal with this conscience problem. That is always there. All you have to do is just pull the scab off of it, and there it is. But the answer is that God has sent into this world not the blood of bulls and goats and ritual sacrifices. They could never take away sin, but he has ultimately sent into the world his Son. And his Son is our high priest who has gone into heaven for us. He's the one who mediates between us and God. And the high priest combines in his own person this mediation between man and God, but he brings with him an offering that is all-sufficient, that is eternally sufficient, and that offering is his own blood, which is a propitiation, a satisfaction for the sins of those who trust in him. As a human being who myself is deeply enmeshed, like the rest of us in sin and a transgressor by nature, I'm still conscious of my innate sinfulness and my corruption. It's all evidenced in the outlaw lusts of my flesh. Yes, my conscience still accuses me of my own deviations from the ways and the will of God. But still, get this. Washed in the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, as a result of putting my faith in Him, as a result of having bowed at the foot of the cross, so to speak, my conscience is free of guiltiness before God, not because I am immune to or morally above sin, not the case, but it's all because my guilt is all covered under the blood of Jesus Christ before a holy God. F.F. F. Bruce cites a hymn of Isaac Watts to make the author's point. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly Lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name, a richer blood than they. Well, that nails it. And then there are the immortal words of Cowper's hymn. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Before moving on, we should ask, 
Why does the author say, here in verse 14, that Christ offered himself up to God through his eternal spirit? F.F. Bruce, I think, explains it well. It is in the power of the divine spirit that the servant of the Lord, as Isaiah presents the Messiah, accomplishes every phase of his ministry, including the crowning phase in which Christ accepts death for the transgression of his people, filling the twofold role of priest and sacrificial victim. Here again, the profound mystery of the God-man surfaces. It's a puzzle, it's a conundrum that we can never fully grasp. God and man were united in the being of Christ, without division or confusion of his dual nature. He was not half God or half man. He was not a superman, but he was a man, a complete man in whom all the fullness of God dwelt bodily. Colossians 3. He was God incarnate. He was one in whom the Spirit of God was present without measure, the unique servant of God, the perfect man, Jesus, the second Adam, we may say, offered up himself to God as an atoning sacrifice through the ascent, A-S-S-E-N-T, through the ascent of the undiluted Spirit of God dwelling in him. In short, on the side of his humanity, Christ was the unquestioning, totally yielding servant of God. On the side of his deity, God, in a measure of love that passes understanding, volunteered the sacrifice of his Son for our sins. As William Lane sums it up, the effectiveness of the blood of Christ derives from the qualitatively superior character of his sacrifice. Exactly. And that's what our author wants to get across to these Hebrew Christians. Now, let's not misunderstand here. There's no inherent power in the material blood of Christ. That's not the point at all. The blood of Christ is a figure for the life of Christ. The life of Christ was poured out on our behalf. Jesus was our substitute before the bar of divine justice. He took upon himself all of our sins. He took upon himself all of our guilt. He suffered in our place. So there is no longer any defilement in our inner being that would separate us from God. His sacrifice was all cleansing. He took it all upon himself. And the sacrificial death of Christ, in effect, announces Jesus as the mediator of that new covenant. That new covenant anticipated in the prophecies of Jeremiah 32 and Ezekiel chapter 36. And for this reason, the author continues in verse 15, I want you Hebrew Christians to understand, but he wants us all to understand, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The old one is obsolete. It's passing away. He's minister of a new covenant, and for this reason, that since a death, his own death, has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called by God, called by God to enter into the saving benefits of the new covenant, may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He is the mediator of a new covenant because... A sacrificial death took place to lift the penalty of sin from the backs of those who transgressed the Old Testament. That's why they could be saved in the Old Testament, every one of them who trusted in God. And two, because a new covenant was essential. It was essential so that those that God calls to himself might actually realize the promise of eternal inheritance because the blood of bulls and goats could never do the job. This redemptive outcome 
was not possible for Jews under the Old Covenant. The wages of sin, the transgression of God's law, hey, Romans 6.23, it's death. All of us have sinned, all of them sinned. All felt short of God's legal standards. All faced the consequences imposed by a just and holy God. They did not live up to their part of the first covenant. In fact, they could not live up to their bargain. Why? Because they, as we all are, were fallen creatures. Measuring up to God's law is a moral impossibility. If any of you are thinking about trying to keep God's law, you can get off that ship. It's not going anywhere. But the death of Christ was a sacrificial death in your behalf, a sacrificial death of sufficient quality to atone for the guilt of all those who transgressed the terms of the Old Covenant, in other words, shattered God's law. So having died for our sins, Christ becomes the mediator of a new covenant. That new covenant is ratified in his blood. It's a covenant of grace. It says, here is life. I give it to you freely. Now in faith obey me. The old covenant said, obey me. And if you succeed and don't miss, I'll give you life. Every time we take communion, we celebrate Christ as our mediator of this new covenant. For Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. For this cup represents the new covenant, sealed or ratified in my atoning blood. Well, verses 16 and 17 inform us that without such an atoning death, on behalf of the one making the covenant, the new covenant would not have been valid. The point is so important. For we must remember that the death of their Messiah on a Roman cross was an offense to Jewish pride. Our author puts it in a light where the point of it all renders his death glorious rather than galling to the mind. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. It's never in force while the one who made it is alive. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. That should tell you something. But when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people, he reminds them according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet, wool, and hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself, the book of the law, as well as the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Well, in the same way, he says, by the same analogy, he sprinkled both the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle, all the vessels of the ministry with blood. In fact, according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of things in the heaven, that's all those things under the old covenant were, to be cleansed with these matters, this ritual blood and all of this. But hey, the heavenly things themselves required better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, he reminds you. He did not enter one which was a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't go there to offer first for himself, like the high priest enters the holy place year after year with ritual blood of his own. If that were the case, Christ would have needed to suffer often since the foundations of the world. But hey, here in the end, he suffered once for all. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, not the blood of bulls and goats. And then as much as it is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he will appear a second time. But when he comes again, it will not be to bear sin. But he will come to those of us who eagerly await him for salvation. 
It doesn't get any better than that. That's his message for these Hebrew Christians and for us as well. Well, thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Just be sure the work is in the hand.